0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, do together with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by a loyal and dedicated listener of Jewish History Soundbites as a schus for bracha and slacha, for the sponsor, his family, and all of Kal Yisrael. And this podcast is also sponsored by the family of Mr. Michael Neubiger, Rib Shimon Michal Ben Hachover of Yitzchak, on the occasion of his 10th yard site, which falls out, just happened today, on the 16th of Av. Mr. Neubiger was born in 1945 in Stamford Hill in London. Before the war, the Nuberger family were members of the Kehilas Adas Yeshurun of Frankfurt. Following his escape from Nazi Germany, Michael Nuberger's father, Served as the Reish HaKol of the known Yekish Golders Green Based Medrish monks. His son, Michael Nurbuger in turn, was devoted to Minhagi Ashkenaz in Frankfurt, and was a loyal member of the Golders Green Based Medrish for over fifty years, investing much time in Koychis into its communal institutions. Mr Michael Nuberger always felt a strong connection to the Balshem of Michelstadt, who was related to the Nuberger family, and there were memories among family members who had travelled. Um, the ancestors of the family who had traveled to the Baal Shem of Michelstadt while he was alive and had received a Bracha and a Yeshua. Mr. Michael Nuberger was devoted to Tefillah during his lifetime and traveled on several occasions to Michelstadt to daven. May his Neshama have an Aliyah and may be Melitz for his family and all of Klal So I want to introduce the topic today. We're going to speak about the Baal Shem of Michelstadt. It was his a title for posterity, his official name was Reb Yitzchak or Reb Zekeleib Wormzer, but he's better known um, to history as the Balshem of Michelstadt. Now on my trips to Germany, um, which is not as often as I would like, um, but we do go to Michelstadt. I remember going there. It's a quaint little town outside of Frankfurt. It's It's beautiful. So we always go to Frankfurt and then we usually go to southern Germany, to Mainz and to Worms, Worms, and to the other towns of southern Germany. Sometimes we make it up to Hamburg or Berlin or Munich and other parts of Germany. There's loads of Jewish history and I wish we would do more Germany trips. First of all, you could call it Ashkenaz if uh, Germany sounds too harsh. Um, not, a, not enough. There's, uh, not, I wish there was uh, more. Um, there is a natural aversion that groups have of going to Germany because of the Nazis, and I understand that. But there is, on the other hand, tons of Jewish history, and it's a pity to miss out on it. So one of the highlights of the trips to Germany is the visit to Michelstadt, right outside Frankfurt, where we go to the kever of the Baal Shem of Michelstadt. and and it's it's in his story and the world that he lived in is is the topic of today now um, before getting into our today's subject, I want to talk about Jewish History Soundbites for a minute. I'm sure many of you out there would like, as I do, would like to the, the, the podcast to grow and reach new audiences. And the best way for you to do that is, one, to tell your family and friends about Jewish History Soundbites and encourage others to listen, and number two, to leave a rating and, if possible, even a review on your favorite listening platform. So if you can do that, that would be wonderful. Thank you. Now let's get back into um, the Baal Shem of Mechoshet. Who was this? Rabbi Yitzchak or Rabbi Zeke Leib Wormzer, the Baal Shem of Michelstadt? And he was this, this um, Baal Shem, a, a Kabbalist, a mystic, who um, was... Baal Shem is someone who used Shemois, used names of Hashem, of malachim, of all kinds of Kabbalistic formulas, and we'll get into that. And he lived in southern Germany, in Michelstadt, next to Frankfurt, and he lived in the 19th century, the end of the 18th and the early 19th century, almost to the mid-19th century, passed away in 1847. Um, so this is someone who you would not associate the Baal Shem with the Baal Shem Toiv, or other ones in Eastern Europe, and here is there this Kabbalist who lives... Uh, after the Baal Shem Tev, This is in a different century, right? He he lives uh, not long after. He's born uh, eight years or so after the Baal Shem Tev had passed away, but it's a different part of the world. It's a Yaki in Germany, in a very different environment, in a very different milieu, and he's a Baal Shem, and he's this Kabbalist, and he's He's like this, this miracle worker, and it's fascinating that it's in this specific context, and in fact, the three interesting things about the Baal Shem of Michelstad Shtad don't really have to do with him himself, they have to do with, one, his name or title or occupation, however you want to uh, call it, the Baal Shem part of his, his title, uh, the second one is his time period that he lived in and the third one is his geographic location I want to unpack that just a bit um, first of all what is a Baal Shem and who gets the title so it's many people throughout Jewish history have gotten this title balshem. it's uh, there was rabbi Shem. there was Reb, uh, um I had a whole long list of Baal Hashem. I didn't include it in my notes, but there's quite a few well-known Baal Hashem throughout Jewish history. Um, and, um, and it basically means a, a Kabbalist, a mystic, someone who utilizes the names of Hashem or angels or Kabbalistic formulas and they're healers of people. They, they, they heal people who are sick. They're Many times they're folk healers. People come to them with ailments, and the Baal Shem heals them. and And this was all the Baal Shem. This was kind of like an occupation. It was almost like a doctor. And the Baal Shem himself was like that, um, and uh, and and many others. So basically, this Baal Shem of Michelstad, that's Reb Zacco Warmser was. Like that as well, and the ones who were remembered by history are the more prominent ones. They were big, big tzaddikim. They were weren't just uh, kabbalists who healed people. They were big tzaddikim. They were prominent in 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 the way this boshem v'michshav. We're going to see he was a Shiva, He was a rabbi. Um, and and other things about them that that their their names are remembered to posterity um, and there are obviously many more that their identities have been lost to history what's interesting is that I did a bit of an analysis and I tried to look around for the different Baalei shem who are famous and he seems to be the last one in other words the latest one he's in deep into the 1800s um and doesn't seem to crop up in too many places after that. In other words, we don't really see that title bestowed upon anyone. And the Moroccan version of it, where you have the Baba, which is kind of similar um, in in a way, does continue up right up until this very day, but it doesn't exactly have the same title as Baal Shem. Um, And so it's interesting that the last Baal Shem is in the rapidly secularizing Germany, far away from the... The uh, traditional Eastern Europe, and he's he's the Balshem of Micholstadt. He seems to be the last prominent one, and he that's point number one. That's his title, Balshem. Another fascinating thing I found about his story, again, not so much about him, about his context, about his world, is when did he live? He's born in seventeen sixty eight, and he passes away in eighteen forty seven. Now, why are those dates significant? First of all, because it's after the Balshemtiv; it's after the spread of the Hasidic movement. Um, like I said, so this has nothing to do with Hasidus per se. Um and and it's um and it's 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 after you know the one who was most famous for having this name had already passed on from the world. Um and uh and he's living in his environment and he lives well into the eighteen hundreds, and he's he's a Kabbalist. He's the he's in his world, in his place, and that brings us to the third point that he was in Michelstadt, he was not in Eastern Europe, he was in Germany, not Germany like in Poznan or Breslau, near the Polish border, uh, today Wroclaw, it's in Poland, and, and you know, it's not that part of Germany, it's Western Germany, Southwestern Germany, the old Ashkenaz, the Rhine River Valley, where the old Ashkenaz Jewish communities were from, the beginning of Ashkenaz, right? Right near where Rashi studied Torah before he returned to France. Right near where the uh, Marami Rutenberg and the Maril and the all these great tzaddikim uh, lived. Uh, so that's, that's where he lives. That's his environment. Not only that, but again, going back to the dates that he lived, this is his formative years already during the German Enlightenment, the early secularization. By the time he passes away in 1847, we can say... That the majority of German Jewry is either reform or more likely completely secular, the majority, and or some of them even assimilated. I, I mean, it's it's it, right. This is the time that the Frankfurt co- community that he was next door to had collapsed religiously, just around the corner. A few years after his passing, the Frankfurt community would invite Rosh Hashanah Fall Hirsch to become their rabbi, and he would have to resuscitate it from the dead. And this is this in this little tiny town with a tiny little like almost like a shtetl 20 30 families in Michelstadt, he's a kabbalist and a well known one and people are coming him from all over whatever religious people are still around and there's probably dwindling a number and they're probably more elderly but it's fascinating that in that context he and he has a yeshiva and he has students it's 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 almost like you you can it's like Hard to believe that this is that this is happening in Western Germany, southwestern Germany, in the old traditional Ashkenaz, in a place that's rapidly secularizing. All of a sudden, there's an Eastern European uh, type of Kabbalist mystic who uses Seamus of Kabbalah, who uses practical Kabbalah and Kabbalistic formulas, and is a healer and uh, heals people with this. It's these three combine, these three points combine to make a very, very unique story. Now, where did he become this mystic? So he was, grew up, and like, like I said, in 1768, he's born, he grows up in Michelstadt, but soon he goes over to Frankfurt, which is literally next door. And who is the great Kabbalist of Frankfurt at this time? Rabnasen Adler. So he becomes a close student of his, and Reb and Adler has this decisive impact on his life. I did see one source that said that he studied by Reb and Adler at the same time as the Chassam Soifer. Reb Sofer, who of course grew up in Frankfurt and was the, the closest student of Reb Nassim Adler, and the two of them were there together. I personally find it a bit unlikely, and I'll explain why. The Chassam Sofer left Frankfurt with Reb Nassim Adler in 1782 when he was 20 years old. The Baal Shem of Michelstadt, the future Baal Shem of Michelstadt, um, was 14 at this time. Reb Nussan Adler only returned to Frankfurt a bunch of years later, like five six years later, and he was without the Chasim Seifer. So either the Baal Shem Tev, I'm sorry, not the Baal Either the Baal Shem of Michelstadt, um Reb Zekeleib... Wormzor, either he studied under Ibn Adler before the age of 14, which is definitely possible, that's definitely a an option, in which case he would have been there together with the Chesam So in, in that scenario, it, it does work out if he came at the age of 11 or 12 or whatever, uh, from um, Michelstadt to Frankfurt to study by Arnaz Adler, then he would have been there together with the Seifer. That's definitely a possibility. Or t- uh, al- the alternative possibility is when he came, when Arnaz Adler returned to Frankfurt, when the Baal Shem, to v- the Ba'al Shem excuse me, of Michelstadt was 19 or 20 or so, um, when Arnaz Adler returned to Frankfurt, and this time without the Chsam Seifer, and then he would not have been there together with the Cypher. Seifer. Um, but uh, the Baal Shem of Michelstadt, his entire approach to Life and Yiddishkeit was really defined by his connection to Rambamson Adler. His aesthetic practices, the practical Kabbalah, can all be said to have been shaped by Rambamson Adler, and therefore he had a decisive impact on his life trajectory. Um, so, like I said, he was born in 1768 in Michelstadt. He studied locally, eventually nearby Frankfurt, not only by Rabbi Sinald, but also by the rabbi of the Frankfurt community at the time, Reb Pinchas Horowitz, the Afla. And as was relatively common for gifted students in Germany during the 18th century, and Reb was a gifted student, he also studied science and philosophy and. Kabbalah, of course, especially as a result of his connection with Renussen Adler. And then he returns to Michelstadt and studied in relative solitude for several years. He was married at this point. He married a girl from uh, uh, Frankfurt. Michelstadt was a tiny Jewish community of 20, 30 families, as were Jewish families, as were many small towns of southern Germany in the Rhine River Valley um, and throughout its history, basically right up till the war. Um, and he. Um, Reb Zekeleib, the Baal Shem of Michelstadt, was eventually appointed rabbi of the town. So he becomes the he becomes the official rabbi, and he was paisik and halacha and everything. Now, some in the community were opposed to his appointment because he was seen as this uh, eccentric mystic who did. Some funny things and his asceticism and, and all his practices, especially his use of practical Kabbalah, which was seen uh, across the European Jewish world as suspect in the post-Shabzai Svi trauma uh, Jewish society, but especially so in Germany, even more so than than in other communities. And there's a lot to say on this topic in general, and one day we'll have to get back to Shabzai Svi and the post-Shabzai Svi world. It's something that we haven't really yet covered in Jewish history soundbites. One day we'll get to that. Um, but, um, he, I mean, he, so they were, they were suspicious of him. So some of them didn't want him. You know, the Baal Shem of Mechelstadt also told his petitioners or clients or patients or followers or those who sought his advice and blessing, whatever you want to call uh, the people who came to him, to do all sorts of segulas for their healing or other salvation as needed. And that was seen as suspect. But despite the, the opposition, he was still appointed. Um, he established a yeshiva here at the time. Um, When his first wife passed away, he remarried, and uh, his uh, his second wife's name was Chana. She lived in Mannheim, which is another town nearby, an old German Jewish Kehillah nearby. And he moved there for a time. Um, So he left Michelstadt, and it was actually here that he achieved more of his fame. Um, He became more renowned as a healer because he successfully treated a prominent patient in uh, Mannheim who suffered from some sort of severe mental illness, um, and it was said that his fame spread across Central and even Eastern Europe, that people knew about him across the European Jewish world, and it, it is said that even the Chassam Soifer and possibly even uh, different Hasidic Rebbes in Poland, maybe even the Chalushi Rim, Himself requested of the Baal Shem of Michelstadt that he pray on their behalf, which would be fascinating. Um, and I have not been able to verify that, but that's what is definitely uh, related. Um, now, as part of his Kabbalistic mystical practices, he was also a vegetarian, which I've seen quite a few times, and I'm fascinated by the subject that I've seen by different uh, various tzaddikim throughout history, especially the ones who had a relationship with, with Kabbalistic practice or study. And uh, I th- just discovered this about the Baal Shem of Michelstadt as well. Now, upon his return to Michelstadt a couple of years later, he reestablished his yeshiva, and he personally taught the students there. In addition to the normative curriculum of Gemara and Halacha that was accepted in the yeshivas at the time, um, Kabbalah was also taught, which shouldn't come as a surprise um, because of who the Baal Shem of Michelin was, but what is more surprising is that he also included in the curriculum general subjects such as math and philosophy, um, which is even, which may be a bit surprising. But as many as 70 students studied in the yeshiva at one time, which for Germany was considered a pretty large and prestigious uh, yeshiva. In 1825, the Baal Shem of Michelstadt's house burnt down, along with all of his possessions and all of his Torah writings. Almost all of his Torah writings, very little was salvaged. Um, a couple of farm of his were published over the years. They tried to gather different stuff that were saved, and there have been a couple of farm which were published of his, but for the most part, everything was lost. He passed away on Sim Gedalia in 1847 and is buried, as I said, in Michelstadt, where we go till today with the groups. In 1910, Uh, which is, you know, 63 years after his passing, a plaque was placed uh, by his home stating that he resided there by the city, the municipal uh, authorities of Michelstadt, And it said something along the lines of, in this house lived the friend of man, um, Leib Wormser from the year 1826 until his passing in 1847, dedicated by his native town, Michelstadt in 1910. The plaque, of course, was removed by the Nazis, and his tombstone was desecrated and destroyed by the Nazis in 1947, which was the centennial of his passing, both were place through the efforts of a couple of one or two of his descendants. He had quite a few descendants, a large family, um, and uh, till today, proud descendants of his. Now, there are many stories and legends that abound about him in his own lifetime, and even more so following his passing, mostly about his ability to pray, to bless, to heal petitioners who requested his assist- assistance, and also those who went to pray at his gravesite who saw the same results. Now, these style stories generally don't fit into the framework of the Jewish History Soundbites podcast. This focuses more on his life and the historical context of the society in which he lived and operated. But I do want to point out another aspect of his legacy, which will include a story that is related about him. And that is the book that was written about him by a very, very important German rabbi of the 19th century, Rabbi Dr. Naftali Hertz Ehrman, who was a... German Orthodox uh, rabbi, one of the great German Orthodox rabbinical leaders in the late 19th century. He was close with Rav Hirsch, he was close with a lot of people, he was also close with Eastern European rabbis, in uh, Salanter, and when he lived in Germany and, and he he traveled to Chabad, he was close with the Lubavitcher rebbe's. And, and he wrote many books, he was a great author, he was a great rabbi, he was a, a great leader, and he wrote many books, and one of the books he wrote was a biography, ostensibly a biography, of the Baal Shem of Michelstadt, of course, he wrote it in German for it to be reading material for literature for the Orthodox Jewish youth of Germany. And eventually it was translated into a bunch of languages. I know for sure it was translated to English and to Hebrew, possibly other languages as well. Now I want to go through one of the more famous stories from the book and analyze it a bit because I think it tells a lot about not only the Baal Shem of Michelstadt and his legacy among German Jews, but a lot about the context of what Rabbi Dr. Naftali Hertz Ehrman was trying to accomplish by writing this book. So I'm not going to read the story. I'm just going to give a short synopsis um, because there's a lot to learn from the fact and the way that Rabbi Erman, Rabbi Dr. Erman relates the story about the Balshem of Michelstad, why he did it and what he did and what the context is. There was this Ribzeligman who is the fundraiser for the Balshem of Michelstadt's Yeshiva in Michelstad and he was a bit concerned because his entire livelihood was dependent on the fact that there was a yeshiva there and the Baal Shem of Michelstadt at its helm. So he was concerned that following the passing, and as the Baal Shem of Michelstadt was getting elderly, he passed away, he was, I like think, 79 or 80, which was quite old in the 19th century. So as he was getting on in years, this Rebzelgaman was a bit concerned that following the passing of the Baal Shem of Michelstadt, the yeshiva was going to shut down, and how is he going to make a living? So the Baal Shem of Michelstadt told him to continue traveling. But instead of fundraising, he should tell stories about the Baal Shem of Michel. Now, this Reb was a little nervous, understandably. He's going to go around telling stories. People are going to give him money. Like, how's that going to work exactly? He's going to make a living off of telling stories about his mentor, about his teacher, about his employer, essentially. it was. It, he was a little nervous about it. But at some point... He heard that a very wealthy Jew in Venice, in Italy, loves stories about the Baal Shem of and is willing to pay good money to hear them. So Rabbi Zeligman resolved to go to Italy to meet him. And he goes there and sure enough, he forgets all the stories that he wanted to say. He knew hundreds of stories and he forgot all of them. And everyone was disappointed, and he stayed over Shabbos. And every time they tried to rem- say, "Do you remember any?" I can't remember a single story. And everyone's all upset and disappointed. And he stayed another few days, and he wanted to leave. He was embarrassed, and the host said, "No, no, no, stay a few more days, and you'll you'll eventually remember them." And finally, he gave up, and he was about to leave. He's walking out the door, and all of a sudden, he said, "I remember one story. It's the only one I remember. It just hit me." So the guy says, "Okay, so let's sit down. Tell me the story." She said, "It was in 1830." And it was Easter, uh, the Christian holiday of Easter, and and the Baal Shem of traveled with her Zeligman to some town uh, south of Germany, I think in Italy somewhere. And during the Easter ceremony in this town, there um, was a whole huge mob and crowd and, and a very religious ceremony in the 19th century still, and wasn't medieval times, it wasn't really so dangerous as it used to be for Jews, but it still had that, you know, danger Jews stay away from these ceremonies. And in the middle of the ceremony, the Baal Shem of Michelstadt tells Reb Zalugman, go approach the officiating bishop of the the, the town, of the ceremony, and whisper in his ear that Reb Leib of michelstadt is here and wants to speak with you. So he goes, uh, goes over, even though it's dangerous to do so, in the middle of this religious crowd during this uh, very... Religious Christian ceremony, but uh, Baal Shem said so, so he complied. So the ba- bishop says, All right, I'll come in a half hour. So Rabzeli goes back to the Baal Shem Who insisted that no, he has to come immediately. So Reb Zeligman returns with the message, and the bishop asked another priest to take over the ceremony, and he went to go speak to the Baal Shem of Michelstadt. They enclosed themselves in a room for a couple of hours, and then parted ways. And that's the end of the story. Reb Zeligman tells his host in Venice. I don't know what happened afterwards, but this is the story that I remember about the Baal Shem of Michelstadt. The fellow in turn was ecstatic. He jumped up, he recited the Shechianu blessing with great intensity and excitement. And he then explained to the astounded Zeligman fellow that he was that bishop. He had been a student of the Baal Shem of Michelstad in his yeshiva, and he was somehow got involved with a local priest who convinced him to convert to Christianity. And he disappeared, and he eventually rose through the ranks of the church, and he became a bishop. And he, several years later, had his regrets, and he felt guilty about it, and he wanted to return to his faith. So he initiated a correspondence with his former teacher. Rabzekal Leib, the Baal of Michelstadt, who tried to convince him to abandon Christianity and return to his old faith, but it was a, it was challenging. You know, he was used to it, he was comfortable, it was hard to leave. So they maintained this correspondence for some time, and finally this priest, this bishop, whatever it was, he finally tells his former Rebbe that he's leaving. Everything after the coming, this coming up Easter ceremony. So the Baal Shem of Michelstadt, you know, went to there on his Easter ceremony to make sure that he leaves. And in his talk with him in that seclusion for two hours, he gave him guidance, clear guidance, how to repent for his many sins, a whole process of tshuva, of repentance. He guided him exactly what he should do and how to do it and everything, gave him very specific and clear instructions. And at the end of their meeting, he said that if someone one day relates this story to you, then it's a sign from heaven that you've been forgiven. But if no one comes and relates the story to you, then you're still not forgiven, and you have to continue with your tshuva process. So when Reb Zeligman arrived at this guy's house, he recognized him. He said, he's that guy who was with us at the time that the Baal Shem of Michelstadt, and he was hoping that he's going to relate the story. And then when his guest forgot all his stories, the host, this Italian Jew, former bishop, a former student of the Baal Shem of Michelstad, he realized that he was still required to do additional repentance, and he prayed that his guests would recall the story, and which he did, and he finished his repentance, and he rewarded his Zeligman generously, and of course, the end of the story is that they lived happily ever after. And as far as I know, this is a well-known story, and it's so well-known, in fact, that it is said about a different Baal Shem. It's said about the Baal Shem to himself. A story with all its details, pretty much, has is recorded about the Balshemtiv, and in fact, this story has all the ingredients of a classic Hasidic story, and the details themselves seem to have, seem to have been you know just adapted to the reality and the context of the Balshemtiv Cholstadt. But it was lifted from almost the exact same story about the Balshemtiv uh, of has- of the Hasidic movement. In fact. This Reuven Naftali Hertz Erman was close with Hasidic groups as I mentioned specifically Chabad one of his other books that he wrote is about the life of the Alta Rebbe the Baal Atanya and it's likely that while he was in Lubavitch he even heard this story about the Baal Shem and he deliberately decided to recast it about the Shimon HaYeshid which you know he he wanted to include in his book now why would Reuven Naftali Hertz Erman do that, um, it's, it's, it was a very positive reason. Think about the context of orthodoxy in Germany at the time. They're small, they're on the defensive, literature is used and utilized as one of its weapons, especially fiction literature. There was the works and writings of Solomon Plessner, even more famously of Marcus Lehmann, Naftali Hertz-Ehrman is right there, with, and there's others, and this literature needs heroes, it needs stories, it needs tzaddikim stories. They can't tell it about the tzaddikim of Eastern Europe. They can't tell them about the Hasidic movement. That's not going to inspire the Orthodox youth. But they can show that even Yekis, in German Orthodoxy of the 19th century, of not long before, he passed away 30, 40 years earlier at this time, he, he here was someone who was a German Orthodox hero. He was well-versed in, in general subjects. He was the rabbi of his town. He was a Rosh Hashiva. And he was also a Kabbalist, a mystic who was a hero, who was a, a holy Jew, who was able to perform miracles, was able to be a healer, was able to help people, was able to bring them salvation and be there for others and take on the responsibility and their needs uh, in many areas. And and this story. Now, by the way, Litvaks. Uh, before you get too excited that it's uh, you know that, that 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 you're excluded from this, Litvaks did and do even today, and even if they don't like to admit it. So it's in all cultures, it's in all communities, it exists everywhere. Um, This story is important as a story because of its cultural context, because of its folklore value, because of what it forges as a communal identity, because of a transmission of values. And all of this is important. And it's not so important about whether the story itself took place or not. And therefore, Ehrman justifiably, uh, at least in my view, and I think that all historians agree on that, that, is that it's totally fine, to be, to adapt that story to a new reality, to be able to give it over to that generation of readers, to the young Orthodox German readers that he was trying to cater to. But it also says a lot about the legacy of the Baal Shem of Michelstadt. He was that person. He was that Yaki Tzadik. He was kind of like the Yaki Rabshail of Kereshtir, this Mekobel, this Tzadik, with somewhat limited influence in his lifetime, although he was quite well-known and renowned, but he wasn't this national leader like Rav Shem or something like that, um, but with the power of prayer, the power of salvation, through his reputation as a Baal Shem. Uh, that influence continued after his passing and it certainly has increased after his passing, especially in recent years. Um, so you have, when we go, there's the, the cemetery in Frankfurt, the old cemetery where Nassim Adler is buried, where the Pnei Yeshua is buried, where the Hafla is buried. There's the new cemetery where Shem Fall Hirsch is buried. It's also a Hasidic Rebbe, actually, the Staliner Rebbe, um, the Anuka. But then we go out to Michelstad and we say, hey, don't forget, this is this is in, in Yekieland, in, in Germany, there was also the Baal Shem of Michelstadt. In the century after the Hasidic movement was already spreading, the century after the Baal Shem Tev, in Western Europe, in a century of German secularization, there arose this great Sadik, this great Kabbalist, who was well known and even utilized in, in the literature and in the stories that are related and continue to be related till today. One last point, um, it's also, for, for before the last point, it's also a technicality. The proximity to the Frankfurt airport, which is a very common airport for stopover flights, is is makes it very easy and very accessible for people to go visit him. It. It's very common. That's another reason, and it's always convenient to be buried near an airport. Like Seifer near the Vienna airport is also a great, a great, uh, a great thing to have. So just keep that in mind when you want to bury the next tzaddik. It should be near an airport and, and things like that. Um, one last point was, is that um, in many, many descendants, prominent descendants, um, a couple of his more famous descendants in Germany, um, one of his great-grandsons was Schmuel Strauss, and he was very close with the Altar of Kelm, with other members of the Musser movement from Eastern Europe, and he uh, sponsored in Yerushalayim, a, in the Musrara neighborhood in Yerushalayim, he sponsored, a bought a piece of real estate which the Bale Musr, the members of the prominent members of the Musr movement who moved to Yerushalayim, they lived there. It was called Chatzar Strauss, and Shmuel Strauss was a very very important person who funded the Musr movement, who funded Kelm, and who funded the Chatzar Strauss, where many members of the Musr movement who moved to the land of Israel, including the altar of Kelm's brother, Barile Breude, and, um, and the Ramathali Amsterdam at the end of his life, and the Petterberg at the end of his life, life, two prominent students of Reb Strauss Later on, Reb Pesach Frank grew up in Chatzar Strauss the Simchazes Sim Broed, the Hebron Rosh Hashiva, who was obviously a descendant of the Alter of Kelm's family, from that brother also um, grew up in Chatzar Strauss and many many others, so he, he was a, this Shmuel Strauss was a direct descendant of the um, the Baal Shem of Michelstadt, and through him his son-in-law um, was Moreno Jacob Rosenheim of the Agodiz Yisrael, the head, the founder and the president of Agodiz Yisrael, lived a long and, and fruitful life, um, so he was a son-in-law, so he's not direct descendant, he married into the family, but his children, of course, were descendants as well, and that's just two examples of the family, of the of the, uh, Baal Shem of Michelstad. there's many others as well, so the Bal Shem of Michelstadt and his legacy um, is a very important story in the history of German Jewry um, and and uh, of the 19th century um, and a bit different, a bit off the beaten track and as we have more and more trips hopefully going to Germany we hope to bring many groups to Michelstadt to pray and be zeichah. Be gets. This is Yudhigeber Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yudhigeber.com huthy for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.